What are the key legal issues in advertising and marketing that companies should pay attention to in 2021? I'm Po Yi, a partner in Manat's advertising, marketing, and media practice, and this is Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. For this episode, I asked two of my advertising partners, Jeff Edelstein and Jesse Brody, to join me to reflect on some of the key developments in advertising law in 2020 and discuss some of the issues that we expect will be important in 2021. Jeff and Jesse, it's great to have you back. You are my first two guests for the first two episodes, and I'm so excited to have you come back for this episode. Thanks, Poe. It's great to be back. Absolutely. I'm so happy to be here. It's so exciting to be on the podcast today, talking about such timely issues. 2020 was an extraordinary year in many ways, especially due to the COVID-19 pandemic that has affected every part of our lives worldwide. Advertising was no exception. Jeff, Take us through some of the notable actions that the FTC and the NAD have taken relating to COVID-19. I would be happy to. The FTC has now sent warning letters to over 330 companies and individuals to stop making unsubstantiated claims that their products and therapies can prevent or treat COVID-19, the disease caused by the coronavirus. The letters state that currently there is no scientific evidence that these products or therapies can prevent or treat the disease. The letters advise the marketers to immediately stop making all claims that their products can prevent or treat COVID-19 and to notify the FTC within 48 hours of the specific actions they have taken to address the FTC's concerns. They note that if the false claims do not cease, the FTC may seek a federal court injunction and in order requiring companies to provide refunds to consumers. Recent warning letters have addressed claims that copper, water bottles, personal training, bead bracelets, and water filtration systems can fight COVID-19. And has the FTC taken any enforcement actions? Yes, it has. It's taken a number of enforcement actions. So, for example, in July, the FTC filed a federal complaint against Golden Sunrise Nutraceutical, alleging that it falsely advertised its $23,000 emergency D virus treatment as a, quote, FDA-accepted, close quote, plan for treating COVID-19. The complaint alleged that the company continued to market its treatment after receiving a warning letter from the FTC. A federal court in California granted the FTC first a temporary restraining order and then a preliminary injunction barring the company from making these claims. The FTC has also filed federal court cases against marketers who allegedly made false claims about being able to quickly fulfill orders for face masks and other personal protective equipment and against counterfeit websites that allegedly played on consumers' pandemic fears to trick them into paying for Lysol and Clorox products that they never delivered. What about the NAD? What actions has the NAD taken related to COVID-19? The NAD has also continued to be active in monitoring COVID-19 claims. The NAD is the primary self-regulatory body of the advertising industry. For example, in a case in December, Untel Products Company discontinued television advertising, which conveyed implied messages that its safe and healthy portable UVC light product protects users against COVID-19 after receiving an inquiry from the NED. I anticipate that the FTC will send out many more warning letters and will take more enforcement actions in 2021 as the pandemic continues, and that the NED will continue to be active in monitoring COVID-19 claims. 2020 was notable at the NED for another reason, NED's launch of the fast-track SWIFT process. Jeff, could you discuss this new process and how this process has been utilized in the past 10 months since its launch? Yes. In April 2020, 
the NED launched the fast-track SWIFT process to resolve advertising disputes quickly and efficiently. SWIFT stands for Single Well-Defined Issue Fast-Track. The parties receive an NED decision within 20 business days from the opening of the case, which is much faster than the usual NED case. Fast-Track SWIFT challenges are limited to a single issue. The NED currently only accepts three types of claims for fast-track SWIFT challenges. First, the prominence or sufficiency of disclosures, including disclosure issues in influencer marketing, native advertising, and incentivized reviews. Second, misleading pricing and sales claims. And third, misleading express claims that do not require review of complex evidence or substantiation, such as clinical or technical testing or consumer perception evidence. Submissions are made online, and only one substantive submission is permitted per party. So far, nine SWIFT cases have been decided by the NED. In a recent SWIFT challenge, Boost Mobile challenged advertising by Metro by T-Mobile, claiming that it has superior national wireless network coverage. The claim was made by use of an online map. Boost argued that an accurate comparative coverage map would be identical because both carriers share the same physical network. Since Metro by T-Mobile failed to produce evidence in support of the map, the NED recommended that the superior coverage claim be discontinued. Metro by T-Mobile agreed to discontinue it. I expect companies will continue to take advantage of this more streamlined NED process in 2021. Switching gears, let's talk about sponsorships and marketing activations. COVID-19 was a major shock that appended the well-laid plans that advertisers had for 2020. Jesse, you and I discussed the devastating effects of COVID-19 in the live event space in the first episode of this podcast, but now that we've been living with this pandemic for almost a year, I'd like to revisit the issue of sponsorships of live events in the age of COVID. How have companies been coping with cancellations, modifications, and continuing uncertainties with respect to live events? That's right, Poe. Companies that rely heavily on live events sponsorship dollars to drive revenue are continuing to struggle in 2021 since we aren't yet back to normal. While many stadiums have welcomed back fans in some limited capacity, we haven't yet been able to experience packed venues, which continues to limit the value of sponsorship elements that rely on getting people back together in large groups. Sponsorship agreements that were renegotiated last year but contemplated a 2021 back to normal with make goods being provided in 2021 are now having to be renegotiated again, or in many cases just terminated with the parties left to fight it out whether a refund or some alternative arrangement will be provided. Now that vaccine distribution is at the forefront of everyone's minds, events are continuing to be impacted by COVID-19 and the slow vaccine rollout. COVID impacts to live events can no longer be considered unforeseeable. So at this point, advertisers and event producers are no longer able to rely on their force majeure clauses and their sponsorship agreements to try and help save the day. If an advertiser wants to sue an event producer over the failure to deliver rights they are entitled to receive under a sponsorship agreement, courts will expect that the parties to have negotiated provisions into their agreements that address the effects of the pandemic on the benefits and sponsorship elements before allowing them to rely on a force majeure clause. Which is the reason why COVID-19 clauses are becoming the norm in all the new contracts that involve in-person interaction, including production, talent agreements, and even promotions. You're exactly right, Poe. Lawyers were busy in 2020 drafting all sorts of COVID-19 waivers, releases, other types of protocol compliance documents. And I expect parties looking to shift liability and responsibility for risk arising out of transmission of this deadly disease will continue in 2021 and beyond. 
For those who administer contests and sweepstakes where a prize element involves attendance at an in-person event or filming the winner where they accept the prize in person, if you haven't updated your prize acceptance releases to include COVID-19 transmission release and waiver language, you really should be thinking about doing that now. Whether that language is ultimately enforceable is certainly a discussion for another day, but since COVID-19 isn't going away anytime soon, it is certainly a good idea to at least get that language in those releases now so you have an argument later to help war off claims from individuals who contract COVID-19 during the event. Also, if you're awarding an event prize for an event taking place at the end of 2021 or even will take place next year in 2022, you need to start thinking about whether you will require the winners to be vaccinated as a condition of attending the event. Producers of advertising content should not only stick to the COVID safety protocols they've developed last year, but should consider reviewing, refining, and reinforcing them so that they continue to be effective. This means continuing to consult federal, state, and local guidelines on COVID safety to build a culture of safety and compliance through the implementation of screening and testing measures, to react swiftly to infections, and to keep records of what individuals participate in or visit your productions. One additional thing I'd like to point out is that production costs and marketing activation costs have gone up significantly due to COVID. And it's difficult to predict what the actual cost will be because of the constantly changing COVID guidelines and compliance protocols. If there can be any winners considered from the pandemic, you could say it's anyone who is involved in the digital space. As in-person interactions are severely limited and will continue to be limited for the foreseeable future, all of us have been spending more and more time with our devices. The increase in device use is even more pronounced with children for school as well as for social activities. It wouldn't therefore surprise anyone if the FTC and the Children's Advertising Review Unit, or CARU, focused their efforts on companies' compliance with the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, or COPPA. In fact, there's a recent CARU case relating to COPPA. Jesse, you recently wrote about the Visco case. Could you talk about that, please? I'd be happy to, Poe. Companies that are in any way involved in the tween space are continuing to struggle with COPPA's application to online services that are directed to a tween audience. Whether COPPA applies is a complex analysis of whether the service is directed to children under COPPA's listed factors, and their application to a tween service continues to create much confusion across the child marketing landscape. There's hope that the FTC will provide further guidance on this issue as it continues to consider making updates to COPPA, which we will hope to see later in 2021. In the meantime, last month, KRU provided some additional guidance to help with this analysis. KRU, for those who aren't aware, is a self-regulatory organization that is administered by the Better Business Bureau National Programs. KRU announced that a social media and photo editor app that has become well-known to teens and tweens for the Visco girl trend is not an online service that is either directed to children under COPPA or KRU's guidelines. In the case, Visco argued that its app is not attractive to children. It highlighted that the app does not use animated characters, offer child-oriented activities or incentives, or use child-oriented music or similar audio content that would be attractive to children. Additionally, Visco stated its advertising for the app is primarily focused on the benefits of a paid Visco membership, and it describes functionality tailored to an audience of photo and video enthusiasts. Visco also noted that as part of creating a Visco account, users are required to accept its terms of use, which specify that a user must be 13 years of age or older to use the app. After reviewing the app and all the evidence presented, KRU agreed that the app was not directed to children. Overall, the case provides some helpful nuggets for companies trying to determine whether their service is either primarily or secondarily directed to children. One thing I want to talk about 
in connection with what's been happening recently is the rise of e-commerce. E-commerce was already really important, but during the pandemic, e-commerce has become even more important. And companies with a robust e-commerce platform have fared much better than companies who are relying on traditional brick and mortar sales. A big part of e-commerce, and I would say a growing part of e-commerce, is the auto renewal or subscription model. Jesse, you represent a lot of retail companies that offer auto renewals or subscriptions through their online stores. What are some of the legal considerations relating to auto renewals and subscriptions? The demand for subscription-based and recurring revenue business models is growing faster than ever in this pandemic world. I've seen recent statistics that indicate that more than 80% of customers are demanding new consumption models, including subscribing, cost sharing, and leasing. As a result, most companies are changing or in the process of changing how they price and deliver their goods and services. A natural corollary to the recurring revenue streams driven by subscriptions is the need to comply with the laws regulating purchases that automatically renew. While subscription services, sometimes referred to as auto renewal programs, can be lucrative, companies should be mindful of the applicable laws to avoid the costs of fighting off lawsuits that have led to multi-million dollar settlements. Automatic renewal programs are regulated by both the federal government and individual states. Federally, automatic renewal programs are regulated by the Federal Trade Commission under the Restore Online Shoppers Confidence Act, or better known as ROSCA. Under these regulations, the FTC and the state attorney generals for individual states have enforcement authority to bring actions against companies in violation of these rules. On the state level, more than half the states, as well as Washington, D.C., have enacted statutes regulating automatic renewals to varying degrees. While these statutes vary in strictness and scope, they generally require companies to disclose automatic renewal policies in a clear and conspicuous manner. Additionally, some states require companies to obtain consumers' affirmative consent before charging a credit card and to disclose how to cancel the subscription to avoid future recurring payments. There appears to be a trend of state legislators enacting comprehensive automatic renewal laws. The New York automatic renewal law just went into effect in early February and follows the California model. And like the California automatic renewal law covers both automatic renewal plans, such as subscriptions, as well as continuity services. In addition to requiring affirmative consent, what are some of the other aspects of these comprehensive automatic renewal laws? Regulations generally have two types of requirements. Disclosure requirements that regulate the manner, procedure, and contents of the automatic renewal provisions during the purchase process, and the sending of an acknowledgement of the purchase, which includes offer terms, cancellation policy, and information on how to cancel. Some states also require written reminders that notify the consumer in advance that their service contract is set to renew for another term, that they must cancel if they do not wish for the renewal to occur. Disclosure requirements require that the automatic renewal policy be displayed in a clear and conspicuous manner. FTC guidance generally recommends that service providers use fonts, colors, and backgrounds that are easy to see and read. At least one state requires the language to be in a bold font, and we have seen cases brought in this state for failing to have the language bolded. Some states also have disclosure requirements that regulate the content of the message, which includes the disclosure of all material terms, including the length of the automatic renewal term, among other requirements. The state laws have serious penalties for a violation which at a minimum can void the contract with the consumer, and in some situations also impose a monetary penalty for each violation. Although certain states, such as California, do not provide for a private right of action, which means a consumer can sue under its current regulations, almost every state mandates that customers must be reimbursed for any services or products they purchased in violation of the law, and that can get expensive very quickly. 
I would not be surprised if we start seeing a lot more activity from state AGs and the plaintiff's bar based on companies' failure to comply with these state automatic renewal laws. Jeff, after a historic election, we now have a new administration in D.C., which is very, very different from the previous administration, to say the least. This has resulted in changing of the guard at all the agencies, including the FTC. What are some of the changes happening at the FTC, and how do you think that will shift the focus of the commission, if at all? There have been a number of changes at the FTC since Joe Biden became president. Rebecca Slaughter has been named acting chair of the FTC, where she has served as a commissioner since May 2018. She has been an advocate for greater resources at the FTC and has promoted aggressive use of the FTC's powers, including combating abuse of consumers' data. She previously served as chief counsel to Senator Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader. Former Chair Joe Simons resigned. Daniel Cawthon has been appointed acting director of the Bureau of Consumer Protection, replacing Andrew Smith. Daniel has been deputy director since 2012 and held numerous positions at the FTC before that. I anticipate an increase in FTC cases involving consumer privacy and in cases seeking monetary relief and other penalties. The FTC was active under Joe Simons and is likely to be even more active under Rebecca Slaughter. Regardless of personnel changes at the FTC, I expect the NAD will continue to play a big role in the advertising space. In fact, there was a recent case relating to the NAD's jurisdiction over claims made on a corporate website that seems to indicate the NAD's expansive view of its role in policing deceptive advertising. Yes, the NAD has jurisdiction over national advertising, but a recent NED case involved an interesting question, and that is whether the NED has jurisdiction over claims made on a website directed at potential investors. The case involved claims by PLX Pharma for Vasilor, a new aspirin product, which appeared on a corporate website that the advertiser claimed was directed at investors of the product, not consumers. The advertiser argued that the NED lacked jurisdiction because the product has never been sold commercially and has never been advertised to consumers. The NED determined that it had jurisdiction for several reasons. One, even though the product was not yet available for sale, the advertising had the purpose of persuading the audience of the value of the product, which will be offered for sale at some point. Two, there was nothing preventing potential consumers from finding the website page and certain statements were clearly directed at consumers. And three, the clear purpose of the website was to generate interest in the product with both consumers and healthcare professionals. This case should be seen as a wake-up call for companies who don't think they need to worry about complying with advertising laws until they are actually selling to consumers. Jeff and Jesse, thanks again for joining me for this episode and offering valuable insights. As has been the custom for this podcast, I'd like to ask each of you to provide one practice tip for our listeners to avoid legal pitfalls in advertising this year. Jeff, let's start with you. As we have discussed, the FTC is likely to be more aggressive in monitoring advertising in 2021, particularly COVID-related advertising. The FTC is also likely to seek monetary penalties in more cases. My practice tip to advertisers is to be very careful this year to make sure that they have adequate substantiation for all claims. Thanks, Jeff. Jesse, what's your practice tip? Well, during 2021, advertisers should keep an eye out for new guidance from the FTC on several key topics, as well as tougher enforcement. Perhaps most anticipated for 2021 is that we should hopefully see updates to the FTC's endorsement and testimonial guidelines, 
which provide important guidance to advertisers about the use of influencers and endorsers in social media. Also, we may very well see the adoption of an updated FTC rule on Made in the USA claims. These changes, as well as an increased focus by the FTC on ensuring the effectiveness of its advertising enforcement program, we believe should lead to cases with bigger damages and tougher remedies. There's no better time to get your internal ad compliance policies reviewed and updated and to audit your team's compliance with them. Thank you for joining us once again on Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. Many of the topics we touched on today were covered in earlier episodes of this podcast in 2020, as well as in our newsletter. Additionally, Manat's advertising and marketing law guide that we launched in November of 2020 provides best practices and practical tips for complying with applicable advertising laws. For more on our recent podcast episodes, the advertising and marketing law guide, or our newsletter, please visit the related resources listed in this episode's caption. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. The views expressed on the podcast reflect the personal views and opinions of the participants and are not intended to constitute legal advice or counsel under any circumstance. Downloading and listening to this recording do not result in the formation of an attorney-client or other business relationship. You should not act on any information in the podcast without seeking the advice of a competent attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction.